You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Well, we began a study of Ezekiel a few weeks ago. It's a long book, uh, 48 chapters, and we're kind of working our way through it. And we've made it to chapter 6 and 7. And if you have your hand out there, you notice there is a, a basic outline. And this is a real broad outline of the book. But Ezekiel begins in the first three chapters with God calling Ezekiel to a prophetic ministry. Now, just a, a quick reminder. Uh, because of their rebellion, God judged his people, the Jews, and allowed them to be taken by the Babylonians into captivity. Thousands of Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon, and during their Babylonian captivity, or exile as some scholars call it, God raised up Ezekiel to preach to them and to preach God's message to them as a prophet. And so chapters 1 through 3 deal with the prophet's call. Uh, or not chapter, yeah, chapters one through three. I don't know where that's coming from. Uh, the second part of the outline is a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. We're, we're in the midst of that in chapter six and seven. We're going to see some of those messages tonight. And then in the third part of the outline, there is a message for foreign nations. And then the fourth part, a message after the fall of Jerusalem, which will be prophesied tonight. Fall of Jerusalem's coming, and we're going to see what happens after the fall of Jerusalem. And then the fifth part is a vision of restoration and hope. Here's a, a summary statement of the book of Ezekiel. From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. So that's kind of a summary of what this book is about. Now, we looked at Ezekiel's call, and last week we looked at a couple of his uh, starting messages, his first couple of messages, and his first couple of messages were symbolic in nature. If you were here last week, you remember that he had to like lay on his side for uh, hundreds of days and cut hair and all this symbol, all these symbolic things to to communicate. Uh, to God's people. Tonight, starting in chapter 6, we're going to see the first spoken message of Ezekiel. This is him actually preaching uh, to the people. We're going to look at chapter 6 and chapter 7. And really what we're talking about tonight is the gravity of idolatry. The gravity of idolatry. How serious idolatry is. And God is, is speaking to his people. Because you've heard me say, God's people rebelled against him, so he allowed a foreign nation, the Babylonians, to conquer them and take them into exile. What was the nature of the Jews' rebellion? It was idolatry. When you, when you boil it all down, their rebellion was idolatry, worshiping gods other than the one true God. And so what I want to do is I want to show you tonight two important realities concerning idolatry, two important realities concerning idolatry. And again, this doesn't line up good with ice cream social, but it's God's word, all right? So we're going to look at it. Uh, number one, idolatry is detestable. Idolatry is detestable. And, and that's the point of 
chapter 6. Look what it says there in chapter 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking, and here's the word, here's the message, the sermon. Uh, God saying to him, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. So he's supposed to face the direction of Israel. Uh, he's in Babylon. He's, he's, he would be looking you know, generally towards the, the south. And he, he's preaching toward Israel. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. I notice that phrase, high places. Your altar shall become desolate, and your incense altar shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars wherever you dwell. The city shall be waste, the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols, there it is again, broken and destroyed. Your incense altars cut down, your works wiped out, and the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When Ezekiel here, speaking on behalf of God, mentions idols. He's speaking of the worship of pagan Canaanite gods. The people of Israel knew the one true God. He had led them into the promised land, uh, gave, given them the power to conquer the nations living there. But instead of driving out the Canaanites like God told them to, the Israelites did not fully obey. So as they set up shop in the promised land and began to live their lives, they were surrounded by uh, Canaanites, and they began to take on the customs of the Canaanites, even their religion, and began to worship some of the false gods that the Canaanites worshiped. Now, Canaanite religion, in a word, was perverse. It, it was a it was a false god, and the worship of the of, of these false gods, and there were different Canaanite false gods, was was very perverse. Uh, Canaanite religion placed an emphasis on sex and fertility, war cults of the dead, snake worship, and other forms of idolatry. And here's the interesting thing. The Canaanites would use high places to set up their altars, to set up their places where they would burn incense, to set up the places where they would uh, set up their idols, where they would worship these pagan gods. So they preferred to use these high places. That's why there in the first section, he mentions the high places, verse uh, verse 3, I'm going to destroy your high places because if you went to Israel during this day and time, the mountains, he's preaching to the mountains, every time you saw a, a, a hill or a, or a mountain, there would be a pagan place of worship on top of that. Now, I've traveled around the world and, and in certain places like Asia, you're, you're traveling and when you see a, a mountain or a large hill, there's usually some sort of shrine, some place of worship on top of that mountain. It's something to do with you know height and, and, and trying to get closer to, to your, your, the God you're worshiping. And, and it was very common in, in this day, and it's still common today, for people to use high places as places of worship. Now, the question is, why were the Israelites so caught up in pagan idolatry? And part of this question goes back to 2 Kings 21. Read it on your own time. But how many of you ever heard of a king named Manasseh? Raise your hand if you ever heard of Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked, wicked king. And Manasseh went all in on Canaanite pagan 
idol worship. Now, the end of Manasseh's life, he had a time of regret and, and repentance and remorse, but but he led a very corrupt uh, a corrupt period of, uh, of Israel's history. He was the king of Judah from 695 to 642, which about 50 years before these events transpired that we're reading about in Ezekiel. And, uh, and he really led in this resurgence of pagan cults, and, and, and this resurgence really engulfed the Jews, and they were just really caught up in idolatry. And it, um, it infuriated God, because they were, instead of worshiping him, they were worshiping false gods. So here's the deal. Here's why idolatry is detestable, and this is back in your notes. God wants people to acknowledge that he is the one true God. God wants people to acknowledge that he is the one true God. And that's the point of this message from Ezekiel. In fact, look what it says in verse 7. The slain shall fall in your midst. That's judgment for idol worship, for pagan idolatry. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The purpose of the punishment is that you might know something about me. That's what God says. Look in verse 8. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations. Look what it says in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, They shall know that I am the Lord. Look in verse 14. He says, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Look in chapter 7, verse 4. He says, I will uh, punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you shall you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, verse 9, same thing. You will know that I am the Lord who strikes. And in verse 27 of chapter 7, they the last section or last verse of this section, they shall know that I am the Lord when my judgments uh, come upon them. And so God wants to make a point. You're worshiping false gods. I'm the true God. I'm the one that you ought to worship. I'm the one that you ought to acknowledge. R.H. Alexander writes this, in every generation, God's judgment, which came with ferocity upon Judah, God's judgment and discipline is misunderstood by most people. God's chief desire is to bring people to himself or back to himself. So in other words, when God moves with power to get a nation's attention, it's for the purpose of reminding them that he's the one true God. He goes on to write, when mankind willfully refuses to turn to him, God mercifully uses discipline and judgment to cause the people to recognize that he is the only true God, always faithful to what he has said in his word. So Alexander makes the point, God intervening here to shake the people and get their attention is really mercy, to, to, to shake them from their lethargy and their, their idol worship to remind them you're worshiping false gods, which ends in destruction. Turn to me. I want you to know that I am the Lord. So God wants people to acknowledge that he is the one true God. Secondly, God wants people to give him their worship. Look in verse 8 of chapter 6. I will leave, leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some of some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I've been broken over their, watch this, their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes, to, they go whoring after their idols. So God here 
uses this really uh, direct imagery to communicate unfaithfulness. He said, you are, you are unfaithful to me. You're, you're giving your worship. You're giving your allegiance to a false god, an, an idol instead of to me. And, and that's, that's unfaithful. Come to me. Give me your worship. God wants people to give him their worship. And then third, God wants people to give him their trust. He wants people to give him their trust. One of the problems with idol worship among the people of Israel is that they were trusting these idols instead of trusting the one true God. And all through Scripture, God, um, God is, is, is brokenhearted and angry when his people don't trust him. Let me show you a quick example. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31, verse 1. God talking to his people. This is before the judgment of Babylon. This is before the captivity. But it shows the trajectory of the people. Uh, Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord, yet he is wise and brings disaster. Uh, he does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers, against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Uh, and so he's basically saying here, why are you turning to Egypt? Why are you turning to anyone else or anything else other than me? Your, your trust is misplaced. And, and then turn over to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now look in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They're worshiping something that they made. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So he's saying people make these idols with their own hands, and they trust them. I was in a, a country in Southeast Asia, and we were at a pagoda, a, a very large pagoda, one of the largest in the world, which is a, a Buddhist place of worship. And it was so large, they had escalators. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a, a pagoda with escalators, but it had escalators. And, and we were going up the escalators, and on the way up the escalators, you looked over the side, and there were these little uh, platforms. And as you were going up the escalator to the top level, people were on these platforms actually making idols. They were making Buddhas and different types of, of idols, and they were, you know, they were craftsmen. They had tools, and they were actually fashioning these idols with their hands. And then what they would do is they would finish them, and then they would take them up to the platform, set them somewhere, and begin to worship. And, and, and not just worship, they would, they would, they would trust them. They would, they would come to these man-made idols to, you know, for help with their a family sickness or for a better harvest with their crops or whatever you name. They, 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 would, they would trust these idols to give them 
what they needed instead of trusting the one true God. And, 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 and the Lord's saying, it ought not to be like this. Trust me, I'm the one true God. Those are false gods, and you are setting them up on every mountain and high place in Judah. And as my special chosen people, you are trusting these man-made pagan idols instead of trusting me. And so that's what it was about. God wants people to give him their trust. I was uh, in South Asia. I was in India, and I was at a, a large Hindu temple, and and uh, we were walking through the temple. They allowed us as as uh, as visitors to walk through it. There are certain places you couldn't go, but the most heartbreaking part of that was we were kind of coming out of the. We'd kind of made our rounds, kind of coming out of this very huge temple, and there's some sort of pole. I'm not sure exactly what God they were worshiping, but some sort of, of pole, which was a, 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 a crafted idol, probably about as high as this ceiling. And uh, we noticed a man walk in the door um, towards the pole, and he was holding, I'm, I'm guessing, his son in his hands. And his son had something wrong with his legs where he could not walk, he, you know, some sort of uh, handicap. And, and, and the man laid his son down before this pole and then got on his face and began to call on whatever God this pole represented to heal his son. And me and my missionary, our team, we were brokenhearted watching this happen because we know he's, he's speaking to a false God. There's no one to listen, no one to hear, no one to, to turn his attention toward him. And that's why we were over there, to tell them there's a God who hears, there's a God who listens, there's a God who loves you. And he's made himself known through his son, Jesus. But God wants people to give him their trust. Now, before we get a little bit arrogant and say, those, those Jews building false uh, I, altars to false gods and worshiping Asherah and Molech and, you know, though, I just can't believe they would do that. Let me give you a definition of idol. An idol is ultimately anything that comes between us and God or anything that's more important or more ultimate in our lives than God or anything that we trust to do for us what only God can do for us. And so, did you know we can be idolaters? You may not have a an Asherah pole in your garage, and 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 you know you you may not have a a, a shrine to Molech or to Baal. Uh, you, you, you know you may not give to Baal at the start of the uh, you know the spring to grow a good garden. Uh, you're you're clear there, but but you may have some other idols in your heart, some things that are more ultimate in your life than God is some things you're trusting more than you trust God, some things that you're worshiping more than you worship the one true God. John Calvin said this, our hearts are idol-making factories. Left to themselves, they just, they just, they just naturally drift towards idolatry. We, we just want to we we find something that's, that's visible and tangible to, to make ultimate in our lives. And the Lord says, worship me, acknowledge me, trust me. I'm the one true God. God. And so we can all be a little bit guilty of idol worship, and we need to be careful because this kind of behavior, this, this heart is detestable in the eyes of God. Idolatry is detestable. Secondly, very quickly, idolatry brings disaster. Back in Ezekiel, idolatry brings disaster. 
So chapter 6 is the Lord saying, the reason disaster is coming is because of your idolatry. Chapter 7 is about what the disaster entails. And basically, what he's talking about here is 586 B.C., when the Babylonians come back to Jerusalem and destroy it, burn it down, burn the temple down, and take even more people back into captivity with them. Just a quick reminder, I shared this a few weeks ago, but in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, uh, came to Jerusalem and took the temple treasures back to Babylon and took some Jews captive at that time. He came back in 597 BC, marched on Jerusalem, took more Judeans, including the royal family, back to Babylon. This is probably when Ezekiel was taken back to Babylon. But then, because the the remnant of Jews who were remaining in um, Jerusalem, when they rebelled against him, Nebuchadnezzar came back in 586, 587, and, and totally obliterated Jerusalem and took thousands more into captivity. So probably what this is talking about is the coming judgment of Jerusalem in 586, BC. So look what it says there in chapter 7, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you. I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways. While your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come upon you, O inhabitant of the land. So he's just reiterating here. A, A catastrophic moment of judgment is coming. Now, let me just say just five quick things about that. I'm going to go real fast, I promise. Um, because not only does this chapter speak of God's judgment against the Jews and the overwhelming uh, judgment against Jerusalem, this pronouncement of his judgment serves as a template for his judgment throughout human history and really his ultimate judgment. So there's some things we can learn about how God uh, responds to humanity by the way he responds in this situation. So number one, God is merciful. Can I get an amen on that? God's merciful. But there is a point that his withholding mercy comes to an end. God is merciful, but there's a point that his withholding mercy comes to an end. In other words, because God is merciful, he withholds judgment. He he gives people time to repent and turn to him and get right with him. But there is a moment when a person, a nation can cross the line. And then God will stop withholding judgment and will send judgment. And that's what happens in verses 1 through 4. He said, the end is here. I've given you opportunities. I've sent prophets. I've preached the truth. I've warned you. I've told you, turn to me, get right with me. But you did not listen. So you have crossed a line in my heart. The end has come. Secondly, God's wrath is terrifying. God's wrath is terrifying. Use words in verse 7 like doom. He says in verse 7, It's a day of tumult, not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Verse 8, I will pour out my wrath upon you, spend my anger against you, judge you according to your ways, punish you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways. And so this this wrath that is coming is terrifying wrath. And, and, And let me just tell you, you don't want to encounter God's wrath. 
because God is all powerful. And, and God, when he pours out his wrath, it is a terrifying prospect. That's one of the reasons that we want to be right with God through Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says when we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are saved from the wrath to come. Isn't that good news? We have to fear God's wrath because Jesus took all of our wrath, listen, when he died on the cross. He took it in our place. But God's wrath is, is terrifying. Number three, God's wrath is justified. Look in verse 10. Behold the day, behold it comes, your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, nor their nor sh neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come, the day has arrived. So he speaks there of their their violence, their their pride, their wickedness. In other words, he's saying what is coming is justified. It is commensurate with your rebellion against me. And in fourth, the things, this is interesting, the things that cause uh, people to ignore God will be of no consequence on judgment day. So look in verse 14. Say, they have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword. Him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. If any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning each over, uh, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble, all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth, horror covers them. Shame is, uh, is on all faces, baldness on their heads. Look at verse 19. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not, watch this are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride. They made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I will make it an unclean thing to them. I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, to the wicked of the earth for spoil. They shall profane it. I will turn my face from them. They shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. So he's saying, on that day, they'll have silver and gold, but it'll do them no good. It's too late. Judgment has come. And, 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 and see, people today are caught up with all sorts of worldly pursuits. And when judgment comes, those worldly pursuits aren't going to be there to help them. So say someone makes money their God, and they spend their entire life pursuing more money. On judgment day, money's not going to matter. All that's going to matter is what have you done with Christ, Right? And we can say about a whole host of items. And so the things that, that, that cause people to ignore God will be of no consequence on Judgment Day. They won't be there to help us when we stand before God. And then last, God's love is for all people, but his judgment will fall on those that do not accept it. Look in uh, verse 23. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes. The city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I'll put an end to the pride of the strong. Their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they shall seek peace. There shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priests and counsel from the elders. In other words, they, they won't even be able to get a word from God. The king mourns. The prince is wrapped in despair. The hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them. And according to their judgments, I will judge them. And they shall know that I am the Lord. It's interesting there. 
He says there, kings, verse 27, princes, the, the common people, everyone will undergo this judgment. And so God's love is available for everyone, but everyone who does not receive it will experience his judgment. And I want to show you one more passage and we're going to be done. Look in Jeremiah to kind of close this down. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. I want to just remind you, in the midst of God's judgment, there's a merciful heart. Look, look what it says in Jeremiah 18, verse 7. And, and, and Jeremiah was uh, a little bit before Ezekiel. They were around kind of at the same time. But, but listen to what he says. He says, if at any time... I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken, watch this, turns from its evil, I will what? Relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, if it is not, does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, now I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. So God is saying... If I say I'm bringing judgment and you repent, you'll experience my goodness. You will experience my mercy and my love. But see, that's the problem with Ezekiel. Ezekiel's uh, time. The, the people of God did not listen to the message. He, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Disaster's coming. Tumult's coming. Devastation's coming. And the people just turned a deaf ear and continued to worship their false gods. And so the book of Ezekiel is really an unfolding of how all of this takes place. But there's hope. We'll see in Ezekiel. There is, there is hope. But uh, I tell you, it pays to listen to God when he wants to get your attention. Amen? So, I... Yeah, and, the, and it does sound like America. And, and the point there is, is for us that uh, God warns us through his word about what's right and what's wrong. And we want to receive that and turn back to him and turn back to truth. And uh, if we do that, we'll experience God's merciful heart. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7. You know, if my people were called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and heal their land. And so uh, there, is, there is mercy in God's heart. Uh, but there is a line that you can cross in God's heart too if you continually continually turn a deaf ear to what God has to say. And we learn that from the idolatry of the people of God. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.